back to the bin. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Back to the Bins, presented by Two True Freaks. Inasmuch as this is Guest Editors Month, I am your temporary host, Trentus Magnus, but you can just call me Magnus. Uh, basically, in terms of uh, explaining what it is that I'm doing, why I'm here, and so forth, uh, basically, uh, Paul put up, he basically put up the bat signal is what it comes down to. Uh, basically let me know that, uh, guest editors month was coming. He wanted to have a little bit of downtime, uh, take a vacation and just do family stuff, life stuff. And under the circumstances, I thought his request was completely reasonable, completely fair, and so I decided to lend a hand. I'm not, I, to be completely honest here, I'm actually not even sure if this, if what I'm recording right now is even going to see the light of day, as it were. If, for all I know, Paul may decide that he doesn't actually need me after all, or something else may. I, I'm really not sure. But all the same, I thought, you know, Paul's a great guy. He's been really good to me. I do consider him to be a friend. And if there's something I can do to help him out, I'm happy to help. So so there's that. Uh, the other thing is, uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, uh, I used to have a podcast on the Two True Freaks Network called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, which I sunsetted back in, I want to say, eh, September, October, November, around there, 2020, uh, really for... Uh, a wide variety of reasons, not least of which being that my daughter had just been born, and it behooved me to focus my time, attention, and efforts on taking care of her as opposed to podcasting all the time. So it's a decision that I made, that I stand by, and I have no real regrets about. Nevertheless, there were quite a lot of things that I never got around to finishing uh, with my own podcast, not least of which is uh, this kind of irregular feature that I'd kind of or that I wanted to start doing, centering on the Marvel Comics title Tomb of Dracula. Uh, it's kind of a long story, and there's really no way of telling all of it without sounding kind of like a pretentious jerk. But I, I guess the long and the short of it is, after a certain point. W- with my own podcast, I'd kind of had enough of superhero comics for a little while. And I kind of wanted to focus my energies on other things, specifically horror. For whatever reason, I just really come to enjoy that genre. And especially since there was there were so many good things to choose from, whether it's uh, horror movies, horror TV shows, horror comics. I, it just seemed to me like the list was endless. And even better, not in the big scheme of things, not very many people were talking about horror stuff. So I figured, well, this is something I can do perhaps to uh, make myself a little bit more unique in the podcasting marketplace. So 
whether or not that was the right policy or the wrong policy, that was in fact the policy or it would have been the policy. But then, like I say, I ended up just sort of pulling the plug on Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, my podcast. And so there you go. Not too much was... When when you really start counting fingers and toes, really not all that much was ever done with the new direction that I looked to have been heading in. And so uh, hopefully that just about does it for backstory. So like I say, when, when Paul uh, sent up the bat signal like that, I started thinking about, well... If I could podcast about anything I want, what would it be? And I realized, you know, I I really do kind of feel like there there was unfinished business, especially when it comes to uh, Tomb of Dracula. Uh, I really wanted to get at, at the very I, maybe not necessarily go through every single issue of the entire series of Tomb of Dracula, but at least maybe knock out something like 10 or 12 issues during the lifetime of my podcast, I thought I would be getting my money's worth or somebody would be getting their money's worth out of it if I did that. So maybe there's an opportunity here that Paul is giving me to sort of pick up somewhat where I left off before. So if you're curious, why is it that I'm talking about Tomb of Dracula number two today? Well, that would be why. I talked about Tomb of Dracula number one already, and so I guess if you're interested in hearing me talk about that, you can do so. Go to twotruefreaks.com, find the Trennis Magnus Punches reality section, and look for the Tomb of Dracula episode, just hand on heart. I truly have... No, actually, you know what, though? It wouldn't, it wouldn't take very much effort for me to find out when, or rather, what the uh, episode number was with that. So if it sounds like I'm vamping for time right now, that would be because... I am, in fact, vamping for time right now as I look into it. And yes, this was episode number 343. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, episode 343. I talked about Tomb of Dracula number one. So if you're curious, uh, you want to hear m- what my thoughts are about that issue? Well, now you know where to find it. So in... As it goes for today, this is going to be, like I say, Tomb of Dracula number two. Cover date is May of 1972. Cover price is 20 cents. Two dimes. Four nickels. 20 pennies. Or one quarter, and you get a a nickel as change. So, wow. It's just strange to think. (laughs) So... I don't know. This could only be interesting to me. I don't know. But I just wanted to throw that out there. Story, or rather cover cover date, is May 1972. Uh, story, that is to say, writing, writer, is Jerry Conway. Art is Gene Colan. Inks, uh, Vinnie Coletta, which I'm going to be talking about a little bit more in greater depth. Uh, yeah. This is that same Vinnie Coletta, you know, Scott Gardner's favorite inker in the history of comics. Yeah, that guy. So uh, plenty more to say about him momentarily. Colors by, I'm going to do my best with this name. Colors by L. Kinzierski. So L. Kinzierski, I suppose. Cover, I assume this is cover artist, is listed as John Severin. Story synopsis is as follows. 
Frank Drake returns to the ruins of Castle Dracula to take possession of the Vampire Count's coffin, in the hope of thus depriving Dracula of his nightly resting place. Inside the castle walls, he also finds Clifton Graves, who's still alive, and together they return to London, where Graves learns from Drake that he has since sold the remains of Castle Dracula. Drake is trying hard to come up with a plan for Dracula's destruction, but finds himself in a weak position when he learns that Dracula, Dracula II, has arrived in London and is now prowling the foggy streets in search of new victims. Worse still, Drake soon discovers that he's virtually cornered as his fiance, now a vampire herself, is hypnotizing Graves into helping her. Trying to subdue Jeannie with a cross and at the same time fighting off Graves, Drake's bad luck seem, seems to dip even further when Dracula himself enters the scene. Drake manages to send Graves to the ground but is utterly helpless against the brute force and power of Dracula. However, just as the vampire count is closing in on him, the rising sun sends its first rays through the apartment window. Dracula manages a narrow escape, but Genie is trapped and destroyed by the sunlight whilst Drake can only watch on in horror. The end. So, it's, it's kind of an unfortunate reality when it comes to uh, Tomb of Dracula that it took a while for this, for this series to find its footing, uh, or at least to find a yeah, sp specific uh, direction, you know, a consistent and specific uh, direction. Uh, basically, you get a, it's virtually a revolving door of writers for the first, I don't know, like five or six or seven issues of this series. Everyone is, is basically sort of going off in their own sort of unique and specific kinds of directions. And so you had issue number one, which, at least to me, it seemed it, it seemed pretty heavily influenced by the Universal Classic Monsters films, and so I have no particular criticism of that approach or that style. But for whatever reason, it was uh, was not to last. And Jerry Conway, beginning in this issue started taking the series in more of a hammer horror film kind of direction. So if you were curious why it was that the action seemingly inexplicably shifts from Transylvania over to England, well, that would be why. It's the hammer horror film influence that's coming out there a little bit. So I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that either. You know, the hammer uh, influence, I, I don't have a problem with that either. But it's, it, it's just all of these different writers have different ideas of what they want to do, different characters they want to introduce, different story elements that they want to play with, uh, different subplots that they want to introduce. And it, it can get, at times, a little bit messy when it seems like there's really nobody who's steering the ship. Not until Marv Wolfman shows up anyway. And, and then and only then do, do things kind of settle down a little bit. And then we can get a little bit more consistency from one issue to the next. But until then, I mean, it's a little bit of a creative free-for-all. So, anyway, it, it 
I'm not sure how well known that is, so I at least want to float that out there just as context. So for those of you who are reading along, you got you, you have questions about it, well, hopefully that puts everything into some kind of context. Now, as to the issue itself, like I say, I've got no particular criticism of the 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 hammer style that uh, this this issue is uh, presented in, written in, drawn in, etc. And especially, especially with this cover, I love this cover because it is pretty indicative of this uh, this issue's uh, mission statement. It's mo. What this issue is trying to achieve, all of that is pretty well conveyed on the cover. This is clearly London. It looks a little bit more like 19th century London, to tell you the truth, but I, I guess don't let that mess you up. Um, you know, you've got the foggy uh, streets, the the, uh, the glowing street lamp. You've got Dracula standing in the middle of the streets. Uh, he's in the process of transforming. I don't I actually I, I assume he's in the process of transforming into a vamp uh, from a vampire form into his bat form but maybe it's maybe I've got this backwards maybe it's transforming from his bat form into his vampire form but I'm just not I'm not convinced of that my interpretation of this is he's in the process of transforming from vampire into bat so that's just how I choose to look at it there's the body of his victim laying on the ground and then there's a small cluster of eyewitnesses, these onlookers who are just watching in horror at what they're seeing. And again, this just looks kind of part and parcel of the, uh, of the 19th century. And uh, I'm just not really sure what to make of that. It kind of makes me wonder The the credited cover artist here is John Severin. And I kind of have to wonder, since this story is explicitly set in what was the modern day of 1972, is this a case of the right hand not really knowing what the left hand is doing or what because there is a little bit of stylistic discontinuity between the the, the cover art over and against the interior art so i'm not i don't really have an answer for you on that i just thought it was worth pointing out all the same though you put aside you know that this the the fact that this doesn't really match up all that well stylistically with the interior art, you put that aside. This is just a gorgeous cover. It's all spooky and creepy looking and menacing. And if you ask me, any any comic book where Dracula is your lead villain, this is the kind of cover you need to you need to uh, be aiming for. So kudos and kudos again to John Severin for a job well done on that. So finally getting into the inside. Look, I want to be careful how I say this because is the art in this issue, the interior Gene Colon art, is this art good? And the answer to that is yes. In fact, I'll even say it, there are times it comes dangerously close to great, truly great art. But it's like anything else. I think, uh, Scott Gardner has probably commented on this and podcasts too numerous to count. Vinnie Coletta really is hell on wheels when it comes to inking. It's 
there are different kinds of conspiracy theories and rumors as to why it was this guy kept getting work inking comics. And however much credence you you do or don't want to give those different conspiracy theories, that's all up to you. All I can do is go by the facts, go by the art, go by the finished product. And what I'm seeing here in tragically too many cases with with this issue, there are times when Vinnie Coletta's inking, it just is it just damages the comic. It, it damages the art. You can tell that Gene Colan was going for something specific, and it probably would have been a very powerful effect if the art had been inked by anybody other than Coletta. So I imagine I'm probably going to be revisiting that quite a bit during the during the discussion of all this, but uh, I at least want to set the table on it sort of early, set your expectations early. Uh, there are just times when I wonder what what could have been. You know, if Tom Palmer, for example, had been the inker for this issue, oh, what might have been, but I guess we'll never know. So anyway, to finally, finally get into the issue itself, you've got, uh, this is the uh, the ruins of Castle Dracula at this point, which suffered a catastrophic amount of damage in the first issue. You got Frank and Gort. They're basically just wandering around through what's left of the castle, making their way through the various burnt-down hallways and everything. And, again, I mean, j- just look at page one, all right? So that that's one issue right there. Look at the amount of stuff, uh, the amount of detailing that's been completely blacked out by, by Coletta's inks. And, I, 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 again, I just kind of have to wonder, what could... This issue, the the art in this issue, have been in the hands of God help us, any other inker, you know. So, but still, there are times when it's like Colin is able to sometimes rise above all of that. And I think a good example of what I'm talking about, it's actually on. You you can actually find it on uh, page three here, where Gort and Frank they finally come across. Uh, the uh, the uh, coffin of uh, Dracula, and you get this. Uh, this is uh, panel four, on page three. You get this kind of collagey style flashback and summary of events that happened in the first issue. Well, in the first issue, or in some cases maybe slightly before the first issue, but circa the first issue is the point. And it does have this kind of dreamlike quality where all of these. Dis- uh, different images are kind of melting all together with each other, and it really is well done. And it doesn't seem as though Vinnie Coletta's inks are doing too much damage, at least on this panel. So, and I, I, again, I just cherish the the just kind of spooky and menacing nature of all of these visuals. That even something that is objectively a happier time. There's this moment where Clifton is uh, talking to Frank before they even leave America. Uh, Clifton says, 
So the family name is Dracula, eh, Frank? And you own old the old Count's castle? Listen, Frank, you've got yourself a gold mine. And then they just start talking about it. This is a an objectively uh, good moment, or at least an overall lighter moment uh, in Frank's life prior to the first issue. But it still has that that uh, creepy and dark and kind of haunted atmosphere about it that portends the horror that is to ensue. And I just uh, I just cannot say enough about Gene Colan's work on this book. I mean, he is hands down, without question, the rock star of of the Tomb of Dracula. This is no disrespect to anyone else that was involved with it, but if you ask me, and you didn't, but I'm just saying that if you asked me, yeah, this is uh, this is Gene Colan's book. No question about it. So anyway, and so like I say, point being, there are times when Coletta's horrible ink uh, inks don't do too much damage. So make of that whatever you want. So then from there, we, we start getting into page four where, uh, you know, again, I just, I like the clear and concise storytelling that's happening on this page. We still get a tiny little bit of a flashback before that, that ends and we get back into this issue's story. And Frank and Gort, they, they reconnect with, with Clifton and that stuff is all great, but ugh. These inks, you know, it's just, anyway. Now, I do have a kind of a question here. This is, uh, this is page four. This is panel number one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, so uh, panels six, seven, and eight. You've got Clifton here, and you get the idea that he's been, well, actually, I think you, you, well, you get the idea. I think it actually outright says that he's been in this uh, tunnel, this hole, that Frank has found him in for at least a couple of days, possibly as long as a week. So, I mean, no, it's not good that he ended up in the hole, but it, just to look at him, I mean, you'd think he'd been trapped down there for months or something like that. His his uh, clothes are all uh, ratty and torn up, and it's like, okay, I you know, I get it. I It, it was probably not a picnic for you down in that hole, but all ultimately all you did was fall down a hole you know how is it that his clothes are this beat up and so i i'm that's not a rhetorical question i i i really am asking because i don't have any i don't have a really good answer for that honestly so all the same i mean look this look page 4 it is what it is all right and the fact is this is yet another page where coletta's inks are just just massacring what should have been some gorgeous Gene Colon art. So anyway, maybe I need to just stop hammering that because this could get real repetitive real fast. But nevertheless, I at least want to want to throw all that out there. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off my Sprite. Regular listeners of my uh, now defunct podcast will be happy to tell you that I, I tend to drink a lot of soda when I podcast, I also tend to vape quite a lot as well. So speaking of vaping, all right, now, uh, getting back into it, 
This is on uh, page five. This is actually one of the best pages of this entire issue right here. Uh, page five, panel two. It's a it's a pretty good close up of of uh, Clifton, and this is a guy who has seen some stuff at this point. The haunted look that he that, that he has in his eyes. He says. He's talking about Dracula here. He says, nearly killed me. He must have kept that pit full of people, people to use when he grew thirsty. And this is a guy, you know, just as context, he was not necessarily on the side of the angels back in the first issue. And so you could kind of see, considering what he was planning to do upon finding Castle Dracula back in the first issue, you could argue this is maybe a little bit of justice for him, but if you're at all familiar with uh, this series, you know it's going to take quite a while for Clifton Graves to finally face any kind of justice whatsoever. So that's one issue. But the next issue, this is, uh, uh, yeah, still on page five. This is panel five. And now we kind of get into what the sort of the franchise of Tomb of Dracula as a comic book kind of needs to be, which is Dracula running around gobbling people up. And so we finally get some of that. Right here on page five, he ambushes some local woman. And uh, yeah, it doesn't exactly go so well for her. So anyway, after that, we get to page six. Uh, and uh, Count Dracula, he... he uh, uh, Basically, he pays a visit to this uh, doctor who served him when he, meaning the doctor, was a little boy, Dr. Von Harbu. Harbau? Harbo? I'll say Von Harbu. Dr. Von Harbu, who served Dracula when he, Dr. Von Harbu, was a little boy. It's not entirely clear in what capacity the doctor served Dracula, but I think you can make some inferences and educated guesses. You get the idea that in as much as he's a doctor, he was somewhat supplying Dracula with victims and whatever happened happened. And eventually uh, Dr. Von Harbu turned Dracula over to his enemies. And that's partly how, Count Dracula ever came about getting a stake through the heart, courtesy of Van Helsing way back in the day. And so, as much as anything, it's not entirely clear what kind of treatment uh, Dracula's looking for here, but you get the idea. It's not, this isn't strictly for the purposes of medicine. As much as anything, there's, Dracula has a score to settle that he wants to, that, that he wants to get worked out with, uh, Dr. Von Harbu, and that's really what, what the sequence is about. It it's basically serves the double purpose, or triple purpose, actually, of uh, uh, obtaining medical, some kind of medical treatment from Dr. Von Harbu, killing Dr. Von Harbu, but also beginning to introduce some vampire lore that is going to become sort of pertinent later on in this issue. Namely, again, this is on uh, page seven here, where it's shown that that vampires don't cast a reflection in mirrors. And so that's going to become sort of relevant later on in this issue, but it's introduced here for context. So after that, Dracula makes a, sna a, a, a snack out of Dr. Von Harbu, and then that's that. After which, 
the heroes, if that's what we're calling them, uh, they fly, they fly to London, uh, or to England at least. But you know, actually, I think it actually says that this is, yeah, 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 it's London. So, um, so they fly to London, and this is basically, it's not even completely clear why they even came to London, other than that's where a lot of ho- uh, Hammer horror films seem to take place. And so, by golly, we need to move the action over to London because reasons. So, I don't have like I, I, I said before that I, do, I I'm not I'm not criticizing this approach, but it's like at the same time there's not a clear and obvious story reason for why the action is moving over to London. I I just I, I struggle to grasp the sort of the story logic that's going on with this. So, anyhow, um, but. In any case, the action does does move to to London, and this is when we finally start getting into a little bit more vampire lore, but also reuniting the characters of Frank and and Jeannie. She was turned in the first issue, and so as a result, at, even if all we uh, even if all we achieve in this moment is establishing the fact that no, she is still. In fact, a vampire that hasn't gone away, and something is going to have to happen as a result of that. That begins happening in this scene, but it also does a little bit more world building in terms of beginning to establish that vampires have some kind of hypnotic power uh, uh, to them. They have certain strengths. They have certain powers and abilities. They have certain frailties and weaknesses. All of that stuff begins getting set up starting in this issue, but really starting on this page, which is to say page nine, you get the idea that she's trying to put Frank under her hypnotic control, but Frank just isn't having it. Maybe he's just too strong-minded. Maybe it's something else, but either way, it's just not working on him. And then, of course, all this gets sort of interrupted when Clifton returns to the hotel room and a a very drunk Clifton, I might add, returns to the hotel room and he finds uh, Frank basically wrestling and struggling with, with Jeannie. He needs to, he Clifton needs to be convinced of the fact that Jeannie is now a vampire. All right. So no matter how much you love her or whatever, you know, personal feelings you might've ever had for her, we're playing a different ball game here now. And, and again, on uh, page 10, this is just some, just great storytelling on the part of uh, Gene Colon, page 10, panel four. It's a super close up of uh, Jeannie, <clears throat> especially her eyes. You can see the skulls, the human skulls that are reflected in her eyes. And it's, I, it, it, it's just a really well done. It, 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 it visually conveys so much about genie and vampires it's i just i just love gene colon i just love gene colon anyway so this is the moment where frank basically weakens her with uh his crucifix and if there was ever any doubt in uh frank's mind or for that matter in clifton's mind this really should be the moment where all that doubt goes away and again 
speaks to the the world building that, that that that's going on here. That vampires have certain abilities, they have certain powers, but they also have certain weaknesses, and it can be possible to overpower them if you do things correctly. So, anyway, after that, uh, th- there's this kind of bizarre sequence where. Dracula gets into a bar fight starting on page... Well, this goes from pages 11, 12, 13, and I want to say 14? Yeah. So, yeah, pages 11, 12, 13, and 14. And he gets into a bar fight with this guy. Basically, you've got Dracula. He's flirting with uh, this this girl in the bar. Her boyfriend obviously has philosophical problems with that. So Dracula smacks him upside the head and walks walks out into the night with the girl on his arm and there out on the street he 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 basically uh helps himself he uh he uh gets a snack and this is where we see the the cover image find a kind of sort of fulfillment where a big group of onlookers they they look at the girl's uh dead body on the ground right as Dracula transforms into a vampire and then flies off. You think about what a terrifying sight that would have to be. And it, it and, and it's weird too, because it's like on the one hand, I love this art, but I also have some idea of just how much Coletta is damaging it here. But at least this final panel on page 14, at least this turned out well enough. You know, you've got Dracula. He's in the middle of uh, his uh, transformation, and this is just so well done. And it makes you wonder how else or what else could have been well done. And anyway, so moving right along, we cut back to the hotel room, and I said before that Clifton is not necessarily one of the good guys, and that starts coming out. And just in case you didn't get enough of that of uh, impression in the first issue that starts coming back somewhat in in this issue where yeah Jeannie is she is using that uh, hypnotic control to kind of yeah, use that as a way to turn Clifton against Frank and set herself free and all that but on some level, Clifton is kind of okay with it. Like, you get the idea he's not completely acting against his will here. There is a part of him that sort of wants this. Or at least that's how I'm interpreting it anyway, that he... There is a part of him that is kind of friendly to what Jeannie's offering here, you know? And uh, it's even wide open... I mean, it's it's not open... It's not really open to debate. At least in the first issue, she did seem... Like she was committed to to Frank, and yet you kind of there was there was chemistry between the two of them in the first issue that it could be that she's choosing Frank, but that doesn't mean she feels nothing for Peter either. Which maybe that kind of says something about Jeannie herself. All the same, it's just this love triangle. It's it's very short lived in this series and the big scheme of things, but nevertheless, it. I don't know. I, I guess what I'm saying, and I'm not saying it well, but what I'm saying is I buy it. So anyway, when you get on to page 16, again, Clifton now has undeniable proof that Jeannie is a vampire. 
Um, this is uh, page 16, panel one. He looks at himself in the mirror. Jeannie is tied to a chair behind him, and he sees the chair in the mirror, but he, does, he, he doesn't see her, which, frankly, that, that should say it all. So, anyway, Clifton, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Clifton just, uh, he, he drugs Frank's coffee. Dracula chooses that moment to, to swoop in. And it's not, again, it's not super clear what's going on here. Clifton did drink drugged coffee. And so uh, shouldn't he be down for the count? I mean, shouldn't he be unconscious? But he's not. He's, he's like temporarily inconvenienced. Lays on the ground for a few seconds, struggles back to his feet. And after that, the fight's on. Uh, Jeannie orders uh, Clifton to, to to kill Frank. Frank makes pretty short work of Clifton, knocks him out. After that, Dracula swoops into action. And Jeannie chooses this moment to help herself. Because when you think about it, she is... This does... The, this part of the uh, of the story takes place uh, um, like two weeks after uh, after uh, the first issue, and yet Jeannie has not really been shown feeding yet. So it it wouldn't completely make sense that this is the first time that she's fed on a person, but this is the first time that we at least see her trying to feed on a person, and she's certainly going in for it. And meanwhile, as all that's happening, Dracula is pretty well beating the snot out of out of Frank, and <clears throat> Frank finds an opportunity, stakes Genie, and Dracula is going to choose this moment to end uh, Frank once and for all. But then the the first rays of uh, the sunrise start coming up, and he knows that he's got to make a run for it. Genie isn't so lucky; she gets caught in the uh, sunbeams and pretty well disintegrates just like vampires do in hammer or uh, uh, hammer vampire Dracula movies really. And it's just, this is one of those times when I look, maybe, maybe Jeannie was always a good person, but it's just, we didn't really see enough of her in the first issue to, to get a, to get a really good sense of, of her character, we can, uh, we, we can assume quite a lot. We can infer quite a lot, but we don't really see a whole lot of her in the first issue. So I understand like the heartbreak that Frank is having, that the woman he loves is basically dying right in front of him. And you know, what a horrible thing to see that would be, what a horrible experience that would be to have. But, it's, I mean, like at the end of the day, she was going to kill first Clifton. And then if Dracula didn't do the job himself, then she was going to kill you, big guy. So I don't know. Um, I don't know. But, uh, you know, all in all, I mean, when you think about it, this really would be a horrible way to go. And so, you know, it's easy to relate to it on that level. But it's just like at the end of the day, she's a vampire. And, I, you know... Frank, I understand, you know, this isn't really the life that you wanted to have, but nevertheless, you know, you, this has kind of fallen to you. No one says that you necessarily have to do it yourself, but you do need to at least 
allow for the fact that this does need to happen. So, and when you think about it, I mean, this is, I mean, what a way to go. First, she gets turned into a vampire in the last issue. Then in this issue, she gets staked in the chest. And you get the idea that like that alone, that would have done it. Maybe not right away, but that that would have done it. But no, uh, it's more of a, this is more like a double tap of she got, she got it in the chest right as the sun started coming up. And so, I mean, she was a goner pretty much either way. So anyway, and that's kind of the abrupt end of this issue. It just kind of ends right there on uh, page 21. And I get the idea that if it, you know, if it had been possible for uh, Jerry Conway to stick around a little bit longer, the, the kind of, the, the sort of bizarre pacing issues that are happening in this issue and the kind of not fully developed story logic of, you know, why people are going here or there or wherever, things like that would have, um, they, they would have been corrected, shall we say. They would have been corrected in subsequent issues. And I think Conway probably would have settled into a groove and probably made something that, that was really good, really special and really memorable. I mean, we'll never know, but I, 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 I just feel confident in saying that this specific issue doesn't necessarily represent the best of what Jerry Conway ultimately would have done. And I don't know. I just, I, there is a part of me that kind of wishes we could have gotten more of Jerry Conway on this title, what he would have done and where he would have gone with the story. It's, I don't know. I've uh, I've always been a little bit curious about that to tell you the truth but uh anyway but that like I say that's kind of the abrupt end of uh of of this issue and it doesn't really have uh just a a clean ending it just genie dies that's it the end and so I don't know look either that works for you or it doesn't and if it doesn't well I mean if it doesn't then I I really don't have too much of a I really don't have a, 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 a an intelligent way of disagreeing with you there. You know, I can't really tell you you're wrong. But all in all, this is this is kind of a necessary building block in terms of where things are ultimately going to go, especially once Marv Wolfman takes over. And he really, I, I, you know, once he finds his groove on this book, how he really does develop this story, this character, or these characters. And really elevates the material far above where his predecessors had time to develop things. And it, this is, it's not the best issue of the series. It's certainly not, uh, it, thanks to Vinnie Coletta, it's certainly not the, the best drawn of this series. But all in all, I mean, this isn't a horrible issue, you know, but it's, at the same time, it's just, it's never going to be my favorite either. So that pretty much does it for Tomb of Dracula number two. So ordinarily, uh, if I had a podcast of my own, now is just about the time when I would plug my podcast, tell you where else you can find me. But there's really nothing um, ongoing right now that I'm involved with. In fact, I doubt there ever will be something like that ever again. But I do, I, I do make occasional appearances on uh, Paul's uh, podcast, Is It Jaws?, uh, he and I have talked about quite a few movies at this point. And so I guess if you're determined to hear more from me, well, there's there's always that. And 
there's also, you know, back episodes of uh, my podcast, Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. So if you want, what you could do is uh, just go to twotruefreaks.com, look at the uh, uh, listing of different podcasts, find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and it's going to be listed in there. Give things a listen, and uh, who knows, you may find something that you like. But uh, so, yeah. Anyway, so as for me, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap th- wrap things up here and pass the baton to whoever is coming next after me with uh, Guest Editors Month, if anybody. So, uh, yeah. But uh, that's it. F- that's pretty much it for me. So, bye, everybody. I'll see you when I see you. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Okay, are we off now? Good. Well, that ought to hold the little bastards.